From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, from outbursts at school board meetings to confrontations at the corner store, the pandemic seems to have given rise to a new culture of anger. A lot of people are frustrated, and when people become frustrated, they become angry and they lash out at others. What can we do to turn down the heat? Then writer John U. Bacon talks about what he learned as a coach for a notoriously bad high school hockey team. If you're a win-at-all-cost program and you lose, you have nothing. So if you're based on principles other than winning, no matter what happens, if we followed our principles, we're okay. And what residents of Oscoda learned dealing with PFAS contamination for years. What the community demanded was action now. All that and more coming up on Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Over the weekend, we learned that the Traverse County Sheriff's Department is looking into something that happened last Thursday night. Brendan Queeley of the Traverse City Record Eagle was covering an event organized by Citizens Liberating Michigan. They'd put out a call inviting folks who opposed masking rules. Queeley said at the event he was called out by the organizer and then approached by two men who punched him in the face and torso. All right, Joe, just Joe. You've got to go. Turn the phone, put the phone down. Turn it off. Get out of here. Um, but I want to thank you. you don't get to record the meeting. You get out of here. Get out of here. Hey, 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 hey. Get out of here. No, 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 no. fighting. No. Here, I'll protect you. No fighting. You're right. No. You're breaking the law. You don't get to record the meeting. This story got our attention for sure, but not just because it involved a reporter. The politics of the past couple of years have left many of us feeling like we were inches away from getting socked and maybe some of us feeling on the edge of doing the punching. Where's the spiral leading us? Brad Bushman is a researcher on aggression at Ohio State University. He's also an adjunct faculty associate at the Research Center for Group Dynamics at the University of Michigan. Brad Bushman, welcome to Stateside. Thank you. It's great to be here. This one incident with one reporter in one town in Michigan, I mean, it is kind of dwarfed by the kind of public aggression that we've seen among political rivals over the past 18 months, violence against Asian Americans and others who find themselves at odds. What role do you see anger playing in the pandemic time? I see it playing a huge role. I think a lot of people are frustrated, and when people become frustrated, they become angry and they lash out at others whom they perceive to be their enemies or outgroup members. So it's it's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, I think anecdotally, we tend to tell ourselves and each other something is worse somehow. Do you think that that's actually true? I think it is true. During the pandemic, a number of risk factors for aggression and violence have increased. Uh, such as alcohol consumption. We know that there's a close link between consuming alcohol and aggression and violence levels. And also gun purchases have increased dramatically. And probably the biggest myth that I would like to bust is the myth that owning a gun makes you safer. It definitely does not. Hardly any gun-related deaths are due to self-defense. Yet um, people buy guns, presumably for self-defense, but 
research shows just the mere presence of a gun can increase aggressive thoughts and behavior. It's called the weapons effect. You research several different types of aggression. Not everyone who behaves violently is chronically violent or systematically violent. But I do wonder if you think that there is a type that might be more prone to these situations, maybe especially during a pandemic when people have less social contact, less social fabric holding things together. Uh, Yeah, we just completed a comprehensive review on the link between narcissism and aggression. And that's one individual risk factor for aggressive behavior. And if it's okay, I'd just like to read my the take-home message from my webpage, which focuses on this. And it's, it says, after doing research on aggression and violence for over 30 years, I've come to the conclusion that the most harmful belief people can have is the belief that they are superior to others, e.g. their religion, their race or ethnicity, gender or gender identity, sexual orientation, political party or ideology, school, city, state, country, etc. is the best. When people believe they are superior to others, they behave very badly. Every person on this planet is part of the human family. No person is more or less valuable than any other person. So narcissism is related to this belief that you're superior to other people and that others are inferior. And there's a strong link between narcissism and not only aggression, but also violent criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like the word narcissist has been thrown around a lot lately. There are some people who've observed things about President Trump that they say are textbook narcissism. And there have been a number of links drawn between things that he said about a certain kind of white exceptionalism that have fueled the fires of the white supremacist movement during the course of his presidency and before and after. When researchers use that term, are there things that we should be paying attention to in society other than a psychiatric diagnosis that might be informative and might light up how we think about these issues in our everyday lives? Yeah, I think, first of all, we need to get rid of the term narcissist because it's not something you either are a narcissist or are not a narcissist. Um, Narcissism is a continuous variable. Everybody has some amount of it. Some people just have more of it than others. And you know, at the extreme level, it is a a personality disorder called narcissistic personality disorder. But even that disorder is continuous. Some people have it worse than others. So everybody has some level of narcissism. And people who are high in narcissism have this sense of entitlement. They believe they're special people that deserve special treatment. And when they don't receive the treatment they think they're entitled to, they tend to lash out at others in an aggressive manner. I've often wondered about the aggression that we see today and the back and forth nature of political discourse. Some people believe that we've reached a state in which we should not any longer 
talk about the verbal sparring that happens in political discourse, this run-of-the-mill rhetoric, that if we fail to call out, say, people of strident opinions who are making threats against public officials, that we're normalizing what we should not consider normal. What kind of things do you think we can do in our lives that has the potential to break the cycles of aggression that have seemingly just taken over public discourse? I think people have a natural tendency to divide and categorize others into us and them categories. You know, the groups they belong to or the us and everybody else, the outgroup members or them. And I think it's useful to expand the definition of us to include all of humanity because, and that was the purpose of the take-home message on my webpage, that we're all members of the human family, that we're all us, and we're all in this together. And, you know, rather than fighting against each other, why not work together to solve this pandemic or any other problem that we're faced with? Some of the folks who are active in public discourse right now, I hear this a lot with respect to mask mandates and public health guidelines frequently cite the American Revolution. And I bring it up not to say that I believe that there's a link there, but to point out that they certainly believe that there's a link there. There are people who talk about the consent of the governed when they say that public health restrictions are an infringement on our freedoms. Do you think it's possible to disconnect American culture and the sort of identity that Americans have with revolution, do you think it's possible to disconnect that from American anger? Um, well, let me just r- respond first by saying that wearing a mask, getting vaccinated, engaging in social distancing is not a matter of opinion, right? Opinions only matter when we have no data, when we have no facts, when we have no evidence, but we have lots of evidence. And the evidence indicates that masks work, you should wear them. That vaccines work, you should get them. That social distancing works, you should do it. These are not a matter of opinion. We have research evidence to show that these things will reduce the pandemic and help it get it under control faster. So this is not a matter of opinion. With regard to anger, I think anger is an approach motivation. People who are angry feel powerful, and anger motivates people to solve problems. And virtually every movement in history has been fueled by anger, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement being fueled by anger over police officers killing Black people, or the Me Too movement fueled by anger over sexual harassment of women. All these movements are fueled by anger. And anger arises when you think that you've experienced some injustice, some uncalled for provocation. Which is maybe different than aggression. Yes. Anger is an emotion. Aggression is any behavior intended to harm another person who doesn't want to be harmed. 
and violence is any aggressive behavior intended to cause extreme physical harm, such as injury or death. So it sounds like you would definitely make that dividing line between the culture that we have and the aggression that we sometimes reflect. Yes. Brad Bushman, he's a professor of communications at Ohio State University and is also an adjunct faculty associate at the Research Center for Group Dynamics at the University of Michigan and a former prof at U of M. Brad, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. In just a moment, hockey's version of the Bad News Bears. They had not won a game in about a year and a half. Uh, zero, 22, and three. And for you non-sports fans out there, the zero is where the wins go. So on some website, they ranked dead last in the nation. John Bacon has a coaching parable for us after this short break. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. This week is kind of a moment for parents watching their kids head back to school. The hopes are so, so high that this is going to be a good year. Even if you don't have young people in your life, you might find yourself watching the weather start to turn and thinking about how to hit reset. The things that we all need right now, they go a little beyond a pep talk, no? Right on time as usual, we welcome Michigan radio commentator John U. Bacon back in. He had a very interesting and very rejuvenating experience some years back coaching a notoriously bad high school hockey team. And it planted the seed for his new book. The book is called Let Them Lead. John Bacon, hi. Hello, April. Always a pleasure. So this team that you coach, the Huron River Rats, need no introduction for some people listening. But others may not know the story. I mean, Huron is your high school, isn't it? Yes, the Annabelle Huron River Rats. We're not making that up. Uh, and yes, in 2000, um, they had not won a game in about a year and a half. Uh, zero, 22, and three. And for you non-sports fans out there, the zero is where the wins go. So on some website, they ranked dead last in the nation. Zero, twenty-two, and 3. Why in God's name would you take on a team in such bad shape? Because I was the guy in high school who was zero for 86 games and scoring goals. So that's why. <laughs> the coach with no goals, coaching the team with no wins. Uh, as corny as it sounds, this is long before I got married. I'm a late starter, no kids yet. Um, I'd been at the Detroit News, good job, and I was freelancing for ESPN and so on. But I lacked something, and what I lacked was, you know, a sense of family. Now, my own family I'm close to, but um, but I wanted something more. So as corny as it sounds, what I wanted was an experience that these guys would take with them the rest of their lives, if I was lucky, and we'd stay in touch the rest of our lives, if I was lucky. So that's what I wanted. One of the things that fascinates me about this story is it's kind of an ultimate small-town situation. Everybody on the team and, and in the stands knows everybody to the point where the athletic director had been your eighth grade algebra teacher. <laughs> and by the way, preferred someone else for this job that you got. How yeah. do you start to think about changing a culture where people are up each other's noses all the time? Um, how do you get started on that? I got advice from my mentor, Al Clark at Culver Academies, the nation's winningest high school hockey coach. I coached with him my first job out of Michigan uh, when I was a 22 year old. And his advice was the opposite of everyone else's. And he said, the first thing you have to do is make it special to play for Huron. <clears throat> and I wisecracked, well, we're already the worst team in America. That's pretty special. And he said, no. Uh, the way to make it special is to make it hard. And once you've done that, the players know that just to make the team, they've done something that very few others would be willing to do. And that makes it their culture. And then with a little guidance, they will reinforce their own culture. 
And it sounds crazy, but you think about the Navy SEALs or the Peace Corps, uh, very hard jobs that pay almost nothing. You don't get famous in those jobs, obviously. And they only take about 5-10% of those who apply in both cases. And the reason is they sell the hard. They don't sell the easy. They, the hard is the appeal of the job. And that's what I was selling. And what's incredible is for a team that was 0, 22, and 3, these are not self-selecting Navy SEAL candidates we're talking about. We had four months of off-season conditioning quite hard in the gym and the track, and I did it all with them along with assistant coach Mike Lapridge. Not one player quit. And of those guys yeah. that had not won a game, I didn't cut any of them going forward. So the, the, the success we had was the same guys who had not won a game the year before. Yeah. That, the first, there are some difficult things to read in this book. That first workout was pretty touch and go. And early on, you had a, a bleak meeting with the team's incoming captain, Mike Henry. Can you explain what that conversation was like? Sure. And Mike and I are very good friends to this day. He now runs the CompuWare Arena in Plymouth. Um, his two kids are older than mine, so he gives me parenting advice and I take it. But, uh, but basically is this. Mike did not realize the power that he had, how charismatic he was, how popular he was. He was uh, one of the best players on the team, certainly. Um, and I pulled him in. I said, look, you know, I get that it's hard to care when you're 0, 22, and 3. I get when it seems like it's corny to count while we're stretching and do all this leadership stuff and so on. But they're following you, not me. And for that reason, I need you going in the right direction. And if you do, they will. I think you don't realize the power you have. And the way Mike perceived it was less of a, uh, you know, a trip to the, behind the woodshed, if you will, than it was a, a wake-up call that you had this power. And once we had that talk, Mike was on fire. And within a month, we were a different team by the end of the summer. Mike was the most important player on that team, no question. You have coached uh, a lot of different young people, boys and girls, uh, in, in different different leagues, different uh, school teams. Can you explain the difference you see between changing people's behavior and, and actually changing the results that you get? You're, you're, April Bear not only reads the books, he reads them very carefully and is ready for the exam. <laughs> so yes, exactly right. One of the chapters is called Be Patient with Performance But Not Behavior. Behavior, we have to get right on day one. we got to show up on time, be ready to work, and all that stuff. But in our fifth game, we'd won three games right away to start the season. That was the, the same number we won the previous two years combined, so that was a nice start. Uh, and then we play Almighty Trenton. They've won 14 state titles at the high school level. USA Today called them once the best team in America. Um, so we're playing those guys, and the final score is 13-2. to two. And I'll remind your listeners, April, that this is not football. This is ice hockey, and those numbers come in ones. So that was a very slow evening. Uh, we all knew their fight song by the end of the night. Um, and after the game, you know, the guys are throwing their sticks and throwing their gloves, and they're pretty upset and think we're no better than last year. And they never, they never lost that badly the year before, even. Uh, and I said, hey, you know, what are the first two rules of here in hockey? And they mumble, work hard. I said, what is it? Work hard. We start yelling that back and forth. Did you work hard? Yeah, we did the whole night. Yes, you did. Second rule, support your teammates. Did you do it? Yeah, we did the entire night. I said, that's right. It will never be harder to follow our two principles than it was tonight, and you did it. This was heroic. Walk out with your heads held high. We're going to get better. The scoreboard's my problem, not your problem. And don't worry, we're playing those guys again, and it ain't going to be 13-2. to two. So the whole emphasis is on behaviors, not on performance. Don't worry about performance. It'll come if the behaviors are in the right direction. And furthermore, even when you lose a close game, a heartbreaker, if you're a win-at-all-cost program and you lose, you have nothing. So if you're based on principles other than winning 
And no matter what happens, if we followed our principles, we're okay. And that is a great, secure feeling. There's another uh, game early in that first season that I have to ask you about. You were up against Chelsea, and this was a game that you you really, really wanted to win. And it was also one of the few early games that you did not attend. You you couldn't be there that night. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, it's a fall league game, so it's unofficial. So the official winter coaches cannot be behind the bench anyway. So, but I could be in the stands watching. But I was flying to Providence, Rhode Island, to do to start a book on Title IX, actually, uh, which I clearly did not finish. Um, so we've got my great assistant coach, Billy Tucker, and Ned Glisson in charge, and they did a great job. But we're dying to beat this team, Chelsea. We couldn't get the upper hand. Uh, Jeff Daniels' son, Ben, was a star defenseman on that team, good guy. And a bench-clearing brawl breaks out. Seven guys on seven guys. They're all kicked out. The game is canceled, 2-2 tie, I think, at that point. So when I land in Providence, I pick up the payphone, which dates me right there, April, and I've got 12 messages after only two hours in the air. So what is this? And I start hearing all this, and I'm, my blood is boiling because I don't want to be one of these goon teams that, you know, all this craziness. Um, but this is where Mike Henry, the captain, was so great. The players were worried that I'd start kicking guys off the team, and Mike said, relax, guys. Coach and I are tight. Once he knows what really happened, we're going to be okay. And Chelsea, to his credit, by the way, the player involved, I talked to him for this book, and he admitted that he started the fight. And then the players took each other's sides and so on. I'm not at all happy about what happened. But if one of my rules is to support your teammates, well, if three guys are on your captain, you got to do something. And they did. So I told them this can never happen again. Trust me. Um, But I understand where it came from, and we're okay. You are (laughs) suspended for this game. Don't kid yourselves. Uh, but I'm not going to give up on you guys. And some parents actually believed that's when we actually became a team. I can't tell you how much I am not advocating a bench-clearing brawl as a team, as a team unifying exercise. Uh, but it worked for us in this case, I have to admit. John, it's not a hockey book if you don't have a fight scene in there. So thank you for that. <laughs> Sad but true, yes. You are the first to admit that you made some mistakes the first couple of seasons. What did you learn? Learned a lot of things. One, I learned slowly to trust them more and more and more. That it it can't be me versus the team. I learned to trust my assistant coaches more. I became more patient with them. Uh, I'm sure I was lovely to work with the first year. I, you know, all kinds of quick reactions and all this. So I learned to slow down. I learned to trust them. Um, I also learned that they're smarter than you think, and they will come up with solutions that I would not have come up with. And they did that frequently. So we often took their ideas and incorporated those um, into the team. So there's also a lesson there in hiring. Make sure you're the dumbest guy in the room. And April, I can only tell you that I greatly exceeded my expectations on that score. I was by far the dumbest guy in the coach's room. We had guys who played in Sweden, played for Michigan, all this great stuff. Um, And they were wonderful. And they were loyal. Uh, They were respectful, but in the locker room, I want your answers. I don't want questions. Tell me the truth. Um, Nothing I I learned is if you're winning, never take any credit. Don't worry about it. Got to give credit to the guys who are doing it, the guys wearing skates. If you take credit, they'll quit working for you. And if you never take credit, they'll keep on working, and you'll get more credit than you deserve anyway. In year three, the Riverettes went 17-4-5. and And there, there must have been at least a few kids around who'd been at the games before the turnaround happened. I'm thinking about Bobby Chappius. What was it like watching them experience that season? 
Look, man, I would never trade 10 goals with me, 20 goals for me, then seeing one of our guys score his first goal. See one of our guys, our guys beat Pioneer for the first time, to beat Trenton for the first time in our fourth year. Uh, that feeling of confidence, that's what I wanted them to feel. I wanted them to be as confident as I wasn't as a high school hockey player, and they really were. And Bobby Chapius, the grandson of the great Bob Chapius, he had a great line. Uh, he said, we went from winning zero games as a freshman his freshman year to thinking that the other team should be scared of us. And to see that out of Bobby, who's not a cocky guy, uh, made me feel really good. John U. Bacon, his latest book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, hits shelves at your favorite bookstore on September 7th. John, thank you. April, thank you. Summer shifts to fall. Some birds in northern Michigan are preparing for their annual migration. For sandhill cranes, that means putting on a little extra weight to help fuel the move. Brian Allen had an unforgettable moment with sandhill cranes a few years back. He's from Manistee, and he's been birding for decades. It's a tale so wild, he wonders if anyone would believe him. He told the story to reporter Leslie Hamp. Brian Allen lives in Manistee and has traveled the world in search of birds. He's been to Mexico, Ecuador, Africa, even Malaysian Borneo, to see and hear exotic species. But nothing prepared him for an encounter with a pair of wild birds in his own backyard. It was April 2017. Brian was walking his wetland looking at birds, plants, and dragonflies. It's part of his daily routine. But this day turned into a bizarre, exhilarating experience. I had noticed sandhill cranes were lingering in our field, so I was very hopeful that they would nest there. Sandhill cranes nest in April or May, usually close to marshes and bogs. Both members of a breeding pair build the nest using plant material from the surrounding area. Brian's property is an ideal setting for sandhills. They would come there almost daily. We'd hear them. They've got a loud bugling call, and it was great to have them around. Sandhills are pretty common all across Michigan. Brian hoped the large birds would nest in his field, so he avoided the area for a few weeks. But after a while, the sandhills seemed to disappear, so he thought it was safe to walk out there again. One day I decided to walk straight across the meadow. I usually don't do that. It's pretty swampy out there, and I had some hip wader boots on, and I was exactly in the middle of the open area, nowhere to hide or go, and I heard the sandhills bugling a little ways away. Sandhills are big, four feet tall with wings spanning five feet or more. They're distinctive in flight with their necks stretched out and legs dangling behind, and their loud bugle calls can be heard up to two and a half miles away. Here's a recording of what they sound like from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The calls kept getting louder and louder, and soon I could see the two cranes come over the trees at the edge of my property, headed straight for me. He was in the middle of the wetland with nowhere to go. thought, maybe if I just hide in the grass, they won't see me. So Brian laid face down in the meadow, hoping to be inconspicuous. And I laid there, and I heard him calling still, and then it was quiet. 
And I thought, that's kind of odd. I thought they'd call and keep passing over me. And then I heard a sound in the grass. And I looked, and I swear, a foot away from me, I could see the legs of a sandhill crane. Sandhills have three long toes with sharp claws on the end of each foot. The claws can be used for scratching in the dirt to find food and for defending themselves. This crane was walking right around me. I could see its legs, and I looked up, and the crane was right there and looking down at me. Some researchers estimate sandhill cranes to be two and a half million years old. Brian could see the evolutionary link to dinosaurs. My impression was how reptilian it looked because I could see all the scales on its face and its eye, and the jerky movement seemed very much like a large lizard. And then I saw another pair of legs, and the other bird was on the other side of me, and they were walking circles around me, and again, just about a foot or two away from me. So I laid there real still. I felt a little trapped. So there he was, lying in a marsh, getting wet, feeling exhilarated at the novelty of the experience, but also a little nervous. Brian had never heard of a sandhill crane attacking a person, but he wasn't sure what would happen. I turned, I looked up at the other one, and he kind of was looking at me in its jerky, reptilian way. And finally, I, I just turned a little bit, and then there was this incredible wham, 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 wham that was the beat of their wings. The cranes took off, bugling, as they flew away. It was almost deafening. It was so loud. And they took off, hit up into the air, and flew across the field. Brian has been birding since he was a teenager. But never in his wildest imagination did he think a pair of sandhill cranes would walk circles around him. And he wondered who would believe him. Nobody's going to believe me with that. But yeah, it really happened. I still have a very vivid mental image of them craning down to look at me, trying to figure out if I was a log or what I was, I guess. But yeah, I'd wondered what was going through their heads at the time. Brian likes to share his joy of birding with other bird enthusiasts and nature groups. He says once you open your eyes to birding, you'll notice all sorts of birds, even right in your own backyard. I'm Leslie Hamp. In just a moment, a resident of Oscoda talks about dealing with the PFAS contamination from an Air Force base for decades. Well, one of the things that our community is very concerned about is that they've been exposed to these chemicals and their bodies contain them. And right now we have no idea how much PFAS is in our bodies. Residents are now calling on the Department of Defense to do testing to find out for sure. More on that in just a minute. Stick around. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. You know, for some people, happening across a little bit of foam on the lakeshore or by the river might mean a moment of summer fun. We now know that that foam is to be avoided at all costs. There's a good chance it's full of cancer-causing chemicals, forever chemicals, known as PFAS. PFAS contamination is occurring all throughout Michigan, but one hotspot is demanding accountability and action. And some people who've had firsthand experience with this have just issued a report on what should happen next. Joining us now is Kathy Woosterbarth. She's co-leader of Need Our Water Oscoda. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, April. 
Also joining us today is Great Lakes Regional Center Staff Attorney for the National Wildlife Federation, Ode Salim. Ode, welcome back to Stateside. Hello, April. Kathy, you're from Oscoda. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first learned about the PFAS contamination that's now become very well known in the area and just how it's affected day-to-day life? Sure. Um, so in 2016, community members in Oscoda were sent notices and told not to drink the water, um, drink their well water. And so the state and the Air Force created public meetings for us to come and ask questions and look at maps and, uh, you know, learn more information about this substance, (laughs) these substances we'd never heard about, these PFAS. So uh, there were very good attendance at these meetings because we were all actually in shock and um, concerned about our health and the health of our environment. So uh, received lots of information and had some input from the Air Force and the state um, who promised to clean up this mess in a timely manner. And that was in 2016. So here we are in 2021 and and still uh, very little cleanup has occurred. So, of course, you can imagine this frustrates our community very much. Kathy, short of what actually happened, did you ever imagine yourself as a water activist? <laughs> um, actually, no. Um, I, I am a swimmer and I enjoy uh, being in the water and, um, you know, water water is life. But um, no, I had never been an activist. And uh, now that we have met many other PFAS activists throughout the nation, we call ourselves accidental activists. So uh, we just accidentally came upon this. But, you know, it's very important to us that our communities get cleaned up from these toxic chemicals. So the report that we're about to talk about was a combined effort between Need Our Water Oscoda and the Great Lakes Center of the National Wildlife Federation. Oday, there are an awful lot of PFAS-contaminated spots in Michigan. Why does Oscoda stand out? Oscoda stands out for a few reasons, I think. First of all, we know that um, the former Wordsmith Air Force Base was really one of the first uh, military installations in the country that was identified as a PFAS hotspot. There are many, um, uh, many, many, many dozens, if not hundreds, of military sites across the country that have PFAS contamination. Wordsmith was one of the first to be identified, and we think that what happens at Wordsmith can hopefully be a model for what's cap- uh, possible at other military sites. That's one reason. And the second reason, of course, is the amazing folks at Need Our Water, Ascoda. M- many of these, as, as an environmental lawyer, uh, many of these environmental issues are not identified by me. Um, they're identified by impacted community members, people who are on the front lines suffering from this uh, first order. And so it, it, it's partly because of our partnership with Need Our Water and our desire to um, lend them whatever helping hand they need uh, to publicize this issue and to get them the cleanup that they deserve. Kathy, one of the things that really pops out in the report are the images that we see, uh, actual photos of warning signs that are posted around Oscoda. For those who haven't been to the area, can you sort of describe what they say and what they warn against? They started with um, do not eat the fish advisories in various areas. And um, so the anglers that were accessing those areas um, saw those uh, way back in 2013. And then um, we had 
uh, this foam that was coming up on, on the waterways. And we really had to demand that the state place these warnings on public beaches. Um, we were very concerned. We had heard from the scientists that these white, sticky, uh, bright white, sticky foam was the PFAS-containing foam. So um, we thought it was very important that community members know that, especially when they're accessing the, these um, local areas. And shortly after that, there were the um, or the deer warnings. So, um, and then soon after that was um, warnings about um, like all all living things from um, the Clark's Marsh area. So that of course is you know shocking if you're just hiking in these beautiful natural areas and you imagine that all living things are so dangerous that you can't consume them. Yeah, they're really, really striking to say the least. O'Day, the report talks about a chronological series of missteps and actions that were left untaken. Can you, for those who are less familiar with the, the, the timeline for the contamination, where this all began and what some of the missed opportunities were that might have lessened the, the problems that people in Oscoda are living with today? Sure thing, April. Um, the, the contamination itself, itself started decades ago, and it started decades ago at many military sites, and that's understandable because um, the, the military and many other uh, outfits were using firefighting foam that contains PFAS in order to do not only actual firefighting, but firefighting drills. And over time, a lot of that, and that's not the only source of PFAS, but that's the main source, certainly, at a lot of these military sites. Um, this has been happening for decades. The contamination has been spreading for that long. It's only very recently, as a result of, to some extent, a whistleblower report um, and increased attention paid by the community, that in the uh, you know, 2010s, we started to see some actions uh, being taken. The report um, was necessary because we kept hearing the Air Force's narrative and the Michigan Environmental Agency's narrative. And that narrative was pretty much, yeah, there's a problem, but we're doing everything we can. We're doing it as quickly as possible, and we're responding to the community. And as I spoke to more and more community members, I learned that that just wasn't true. So we needed to come up with this counter-narrative to tell the community's truth about what really happens here. And I'll just give you one example of, I think, a major missed opportunity. Uh, we talk about endless delays. Uh, the Air Force has been telling the community for years now that the problem is going to be cleaned up in a timely manner. But for years and years, the only thing the Air Force would do is study the problem. And instead of going in there and taking action and getting the contamination out, they were mostly studying the problem, figuring out how widespread it was, trying to decide what actions they would take. What the community demanded was action now. You can, of course, study it along the way, but we know that there's a problem now. We know that something can be done about it in the interim basis. And so the Air Force really needs to do that. So that's just one of the uh, most obvious missed opportunities that we point out in the report. Kathy, what are some of the missed opportunities that really stand out to you? I guess either in the report or in your own memory of how this has played out over the past few years. Well, one of the things that our community is very concerned about is that they've been exposed to these chemicals and their bodies contain them. And right now we have no idea how much PFAS is in our bodies. The state of Michigan has not um, started any exposure studies uh, for our community members. Um, they're being done in other parts of the state, but 
um, in Oscoda, one of the first sites, you know, in all of the U.S. to be identified, the the state nor the U.S. Air Force has attempted to study our bodies. And that's uh, really what needs to happen. It's uh, they've studied the animals, they've studied the site, but no testing of of the people to see, you know, how much PFAS is in their bodies and, and so that we can take proactive steps to minimize our exposure and actually really just have a baseline of what, you know, where we are. And, and that's definitely a missed opportunity that still has not happened yet. Kathy Wooster-Barth is co-leader of Need Our Water, Oscoda. We're also talking today with Ode Salim, staff attorney with the Great Lakes Regional Center for the National Wildlife Federation. Kathy, do you know anybody in the community who's gone to the trouble and expense of having, of, of having you know, their own biological samples tested? I do. There, there are actually two veterans that lived in Oscoda um, back in the uh, late 80s. The testing cost upwards of um, seven to nine hundred dollars, um, and they have tested positive for multiple PFAS even now, decades after they were stationed at this site. Ode, with the contamination in Oscoda linked pretty clearly to the former Wurtsmith base, is there any question about who's going to be responsible for cleaning up this mess? I mean, what is the current state of? how people are talking about the legal responsibility for the on the part of the Department of Defense. April, there's no question who caused uh, the pollution and who needs to clean it up. That That is definitely the, um, the Air Force's responsibility. The real question is um, not only what is the Air Force going to do about it, but is the state going to do even more to hold the Air Force responsible and to get meaningful cleanup happening as soon as possible. So, and this is one of those instances where nobody is pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh, this is your problem to clean up, or this is yours. We know whose uh, who's pollution it is. We know who's responsible. The question is simply, is the Air Force and is the Michigan Environmental Agency, are they going to be uh, sufficiently responsive to the community's needs to the impacts that the community is suffering? Are they going to be sufficiently responsive in in years to come? I think the answer has to be yes. This counter-narrative report that Need Our Water and National Wildlife Federation co-authored, I, I think will help with that effort because at the end of the day, I think we all have the same goal. We just don't all have the same willingness uh, to get there quickly. We need the state agency to really step up and uh, hold the Air Force responsible in all the different ways um, that it that it can, and of course we need the Air Force to actually clean up, not just talk about it or or study it. Although, as Kathy mentioned, there's still some studies that can and should be done on on um, how much of this stuff is is in the bodies of community members. Uh, but they've got to start to take action and remediate soon. Can I ask you both what you you feel like remediation should look like? There there have been some measures proposed, but at the same time, you've got folks like Congressman Andy Levin sounding the alarm about burning PFAS to get rid of it. What does an appropriate cleanup plan look like? Uh, Ode, do you want to go first? And then, Kathy, I'd, I'd love to hear your answer to this as well. Sure thing. Yeah, there's no question. So PFAS um, are substances that are quite ubiquitous because of all the different uses they've had over the years. You know, they move in the environment. It's very difficult to degrade them, to break them down because they have very strong uh, carbon fluorine bonds. And so 
Um, I mean, what, there, there's a question that comes even before yours, which is how on earth did we allow all of these PFAS uh, to cover our bodies and our wildlife and our, and our water bodies and our soils? How did we allow all of this to happen? In terms of cleanup, I, I think that we have to be very careful because um, as uh, Congressman Levin um, you know, is probably thinking about, you don't want to solve one problem, which is removing PFAS from the Ascoda community, uh, and then create another problem, which is send it to an incinerator that may be very close to black and brown communities and cause a huge environmental injustice. There are ways to remove the PFAS from the site and to store and dispose of it properly. And we just would ask the Air Force and the Environmental Agency, the Michigan Environmental Agency, to be thoughtful about the life cycle of pollution and about what's going to happen to the PFAS if and when it's removed from the, the acute uh, areas where it's located in Oscoda. They have to really put some thought into whether the discarding of the PFAS is going to have equal or worse impacts than than the presence of it now in Oscoda. Kathy, what about you? Are there are there things that you and the group have decided to advocate for that you think would be both realistic and really appropriate to the level of contamination? Yes, I'm I'm glad you asked that in terms of priorities. Um, we have developed a priority list. Um, our first priority was stopping the plumes, we call them plumes, of PFAS that are flowing into a nearby lake called Benetton Lake. Um, so stopping those plumes from flowing freely into that lake. Um, that's where we're seeing, you know, all of that foam, um, where those people are exposed to it on the beaches, and that surface water is highly contaminated. So we asked the Air Force and the state to address that first. Um, our second priority was making sure that or ensuring that all affected areas have a safe drinking water source, municipal water supply. So we're working with the local township and with the state on ensuring that all affected areas have that safe water supply going to their homes. And then that third priority was, you know, asking for those health studies for the affected persons um, in the area. And April, I do want to mention the, the multiple maps re regarding groundwater and residential sampling. And um, we have so many, so many maps that um, both the Air Force and the state have produced. And, and it's really graphic. You can see those really dark areas on the former base where those, um, you know, spills, where the discharges occurred with PFAS. And really, it, it is simply they just need to get those filtration systems placed. And that's what we're asking for. Those, the, that PFAS that's flowing off of this location to be contained, to stop flowing into our surface and groundwaters. I wanted to ask what you think the Biden administration uh, is, is going to, what course they're going to take. We have had, of course, folks like Andy Levin, Debbie Dingell, and others uh, talking very seriously to the administration about this. Ode, what signs do you see coming out of the Biden administration that says whether or not action is going to be happening soon? Well, um, you know, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency under the Biden administration is certainly doing a better job than the prior administration at taking uh, PFAS contamination seriously and, uh, you know, considering the development of some actual uh, numeric standards. You know, that's all well and good. But what we, but what we have in Michigan already is we have much better 
state standards, state cleanup standards than most other states have and certainly than the federal government has. So Michigan has already put a lot of thought into this and has its standards. What the Biden administration, I hope, will do is, number one, work with Congress to make sure through the National Defense Authorization Act, as well as other funding vehicles, to make sure that more money is available for PFAS cleanup at military sites across the country, including the former Wordsmith Air Force Base. And um, I hope they will steer the military toward more respect for state standards, uh, steer the military toward complying with state standards that, as I said, have already been thought through and developed carefully um, at the state level. Right now, what we have is the Air Force looking at the Michigan standards and either saying we're not going to comply with them or we'll figure out many years from now whether we're going to comply with them. That is surely something that the Biden administration uh, can and should take a different position on. Kathy? We do have members in our group that are working at that level uh, and, uh, including Tony Spaniola. So we're, we're making sure that we're having those conversations uh, with people at that level and, um, you know, hopeful for the future. Kathy Woosterbarth is a resident of Oscoda and she's co-leader of Need Our Water Oscoda. We've also been talking with the National Wildlife Federation staff attorney for the Great Lakes Regional Center, Ode Salim. Ode, it's great talking to you. Kathy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, April. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.